Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 131, Myth Movie Night, Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, we got a good 80s flashback here. None of us were born in the 80s, but that's fine. I Eric was. was. Uh, that's true. Schneider was. I was really excited to actually do this movie because we've done a lot of like less lighthearted ones as of late. And I think this one has a really good message to it, which is shocking for an 80s film. There was a lot of really unexpected like loveliness and lightheartedness, which I really liked. And of course, the Sasquatch. So we do get into some uh, some Bigfoot Sasquatch lore here. And it's uh, really, really fun. Yeah, I, I really like this movie. I think it's probably one of my favorite Bigfoot movies, which is not saying a lot. The genre isn't that big. You know, Julia, who I would want to text the moment I saw Bigfoot for the first time? I think it would be our new patrons. It sure would be. We have two Emily's S, Emily S and Emily S. I'm going to call you Emily's S. Um, Associates Anonymous, Henry, uh, fittingly enough, Frost, Michelle, Malin, and David. And we would also be so excited to go camping in the Pacific Northwest with our supporting producer level patrons. That's Philip, Eeyore, Christy, Mercedes, Samantha, Danica, Marissa, Sammy, Josie, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh. And of course, our legend level patrons, Cody, Mr. Folk, Talia, Haley, James, Jess, Sarah, Sandra, Audra, and Jack Marie. Y'all are the best and we would give you big, smelly Bigfoot hugs. And Julia, tell us what you were drinking during this episode. Not smelly at all and very delicious. Well, Amanda, when we were in Portland, Oregon for the Listen Up Festival, we visited a very, very, very good distillery called Westward Whiskey. And while I cannot drink brown liquor, as it's been pointed out many times in this podcast, I did really enjoy their Casa Magdalena rum, which is really, really, really good. And I know you enjoy their whiskey quite a bit. I really do. Also, uh, three of the six Multitude hosts brought Westward Whiskey merch with us to uh, PodX in Nashville because their logo is beautiful. And uh, Julia and Eric had dueling hats. I had a sweatshirt. It was wonderful. We're always twins. It's great. So that is our drink for the week. I would also love to recommend a new podcast that I am completely in love with. Our friend Ellie recommended this to me, and now I want to recommend it to all of you. It's called All My Relations, and it is a podcast by two Native American women talking about all things Native American in the 21st century, one of whom is Adrienne Keene, who I followed on Twitter for a long, long time. She is the creator and author of Native Appropriations, which is a blog that discusses representations of indigenous people in popular culture, where she uh, began by, you know, that Urban Outfitters thing in 2010 where they were just like completely appropriating. Yeah. So she has basically partly responsible for the fact that all of us have a greater fluency and understanding of appropriation. And I really love her work. This podcast is awesome. They have a wonderful dynamic. They talk about all kinds of things. I am learning a ton. And I want to recommend that everybody of of any background check out all my relations. Oh, I'm definitely going to check that out. Thank you for the recommendation, Amanda. And thank our friend Ellie. Always with the good Rex. Thanks, Ellie. If you haven't listened to our La Llorona episode, please do, because Ellie crushed it. Absolutely. Speaking of crushing it, Julia, I am nervous but excited for our upcoming show on June 21st at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Ooh, yeah, I am so excited. I Three years ago when we started this podcast, I couldn't even possibly imagine performing at the Bell House, and now we're going to, and I get butterflies just thinking about it. It's extremely exciting. It was uh, as if there was snow on the ground, and suddenly it's June. So this is coming up, folks. It's on June 21st, less than three weeks away. And if you are in New York, if you're in New Jersey, if you're in Vermont, if you're in New Hampshire, come on down. You can buy tickets now at multitude.productions live. You 
will not regret it. All of our live shows so far have been an absolute delight. And I'm saying that as someone who watched them from backstage. Yeah, genuinely. I mean, if you have been looking for an excuse to come to New York to visit 20-sided store to, I don't know, uh, buy things at outlet stores on Go your way to Hades the city. town. I don't know. Go see Hades Town. Who knows? Go see that sexy Oklahoma. Mm. It's Oklahoma, but sexier. It is. It's Apparently, very sexy. we're seeing it in July. In any case, this is the time to do it. This is your moment. Grab a friend. Grab your mom. We love mom. Moms love us. And come on down to the Bell House. We love moms. Moms love us. Spirits Podcast. Multitude.productions slash live. And now, without further ado, enjoy Spirits Podcast episode 131 Myth Movie Night Harry and the Hendersons. Amanda, we're back with another movie night. Hey, what's up? Yeah, hello, it's me. Um, you told me to watch Harry and the Hendersons on Netflix. Yes, I did. And I said, oh, cool. Is that a movie about a band? Because that's what it sounded like. It does uh, kind of sound like Harry and the Potters. I got you. That's true. That's true. But Julia, when, I didn't look anything up about the movie because I didn't want to spoil myself. But is this like a 70s relic? When was this put out? 1987. Ooh. See, I just, I don't know. I guess uh, I have no good thoughts on like 70s versus 80s. People have just like feathered hair. I'm just like 70s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Um. I think I wrote down one of my first notes of this movie was, wow, I'm so glad I didn't get raised in the 80s. So I didn't have to go through this family field trip nonsense. Yeah, there, um, there is a lot of... Uh, driving without seatbelts, mm-hmm. a lot of children just touching guns all the time, yeah. and very funny references to, I guess, a Seattle culture of the late '80s where people were like into health food. And is that a character trait? Yeah, that was that was weird. I think that was like the '80s diet craze, which mm. is harmful, and we shouldn't like put ourselves through that shit. But we'll talk Truthful, about it when we but- get there. You know what did uh, remind me of my upbringing, Julia, are classic family trips that end in yelling, which definitely is what's happening here. Yeah, my parents didn't do these kind of trips, probably because there was only one of me, so they didn't feel like they needed to keep me entertained like that. That's true. Yeah, they were like, Julia can entertain herself. She has a lot of books and we can, you know, go do our own adult things, which sounds fun. That's true. Um, But in this case, we have John Lithgow, who really wants uh, his children especially his son i think to experience the great outdoors and his wife is like no yeah there is so much toxic masculinity at the beginning of this film it is ridiculously strong toxic masculinity but you know they do address it by the end which i thought was really nice yes i I wrote down i said harry and the hendersons or a man comes to terms with his toxic masculinity by adding a cryptid to his family uh and i said what if we are the monsters all along which is true. Oh, God. Okay, we'll get into this. Why don't we uh, why don't we break down the plot starting the beginning and get into the the nitty gritty later on? Take me through. All right. So we open with something wandering through the forest as a father and son talk about the survival of the fittest and hunting. And then immediately cut to John Lithgow and his small child, um, Ernie, who have killed a rabbit. And they are determined to cook said rabbit, even though the mother reminds her husband, George, John Lithgow, that they were only supposed to be staying till lunch and then heading home. You know, if you told me that this movie was made five years ago, I would have been like, yeah, John Lithgow looks great. Like that man has sort of not aged. Yeah. Like I know when you when you do side by side, but he looks so much like his future self that it, it really threw me for a loop there. I feel like we only know John Lithgow as older John Lithgow. Like, we Mm, were raised on older John Lithgow, so he looks about the same to us. 
This is true. This is true. But I really actually liked that opening shot that you mentioned where it, it felt like it was like a point of view camera for an animal as it tracked its way through the forest. And my interpretation was that the point of view belongs to Ernie and George. Yes. Like it sort of does a reveal like, oh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a man and his kid, which sets up this motif that, you know, who is the hunter? Who is the hunted? You know, like who is the animal here? Who is acting in a way that we would think is like wild and undisciplined? Um, so this was a, a fun motif for me to track throughout the movie. Yeah, this this movie makes a lot of really strong arguments for uh, conservation and like ecological conservation, particularly. Yeah, I, I kind of love that. It's definitely not what you think it is going into it, which is a, a family comedy about Bigfoot. Yes. And to Nancy's point, the family ends up packing up and driving out. Not a single seatbelt to be found, as I said earlier. Uh, and George is driving dangerously in several ways, like distracted driving, taking the curves uh, a lot, like goes over a sort of bump and doesn't really slow down. And um, I wrote here a hypothesis, which is nothing would happen in this movie if George listened to his wife. Which is Your absolutely thoughts. true. 100%. Like any 80s movie, if they just listened to the wife, none of the shenanigans would happen. Uh, but indeed, they don't. And George ends up hitting something in the road. He's blinded by the sun, even though his wife tells him to put on sunglasses. She tells him like three really good suggestions to make his driving less unsafe. And uh, he follows none of them, leading to him discovering Sasquatch. She does have a great line, though, when they hit uh, said Bigfoot, where she goes, could it be a gorilla? And his response is, I don't think they get that big around here. Oh, she's very, very good. good. There, There is some good writing in here, yes, I will say. There's some good comedy Good, good goose. Only only some dirty humor. It's not bad. And there's a lot of sort of farcical stuff, too. Like, I, I found myself very amused. Like, there wasn't a lot of plot to, to catch. There was sort of a pretty straightforward, you know, arc to the story. But there is some funny and kind of suspenseful moments as George, like, goes over, has his gun, you know, goes to the body, tries to figure out what this is. Mm. And they realize that it's a Yeti. Yeah, it's uh, it's Bigfoot. The son makes the observation when he sees the hand of said Bigfoot and he goes, do you think it's Bigfoot? And George is overwhelmed by the possibility of having discovered Bigfoot uh, and potentially killing Bigfoot and now can sell the body to science or a museum or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he even acknowledges that this is a major discovery and he suggests that they bring the body back home with them. And honestly, uh, the way that he is able to tie the body up and leverage it onto the roof of the car is very impressive and very serial killer-y and uh, concerning. Yeah, and he happens to have a tarp too, which is very good thinking. Um, but unfortunately, the Yeti does not stay dead. They thought he was dead, but in fact he is not because he begins to wake up and then things go awry. Yes, he wakes up, they slam the brakes on the car because they've already started heading home and they hit him once again, this time George is positive that the the Bigfoot is dead, and so they they continue home, still covered with the tarp, and they pull into the driveway, and you can see the feet hanging out underneath the tarp, and it's a very funny <laughs> shot. And they return yeah. to their home in Seattle. Yeah, and then we cut to the sort of B plot of this movie, which is a very uh, hilariously intense tracker on their trail. Sees the you know the broken stick, sees the footprints, finds a license plate that fell off of their car. Which bad idea? I see this in, in movies all the time. Like the more conspicuous your car looks, the more likely a cop is going to stop you. Yeah, that's so true. don't look like you're trying to transport a body home. Oh God! We get the impression later on that George and his family are big hunters, as they have to hide a bunch of their taxidermy later. Yes. 
But um, even then, I think your very conspicuous feet sticking out, even if it was a deer, it's clearly not a deer in this situation. It looks very much like a humanoid body. Yeah, it sure does. Um, ben, the, the tracker is clearly, you know, on, on the scent, uh, literally and metaphorically, and is going to end up meeting up with them back home. Um, where do they put do they put Harry the um, the Bigfoot in the garage? Is that where he ended up? Yeah. So they keep the body on the top of the car and then park the car gotcha. in the garage. And uh, at some point during the night, George realizes that uh, Harry is no longer on top of the car. And uh, so begins a sort of nighttime farce <laughs> where Harry the Bigfoot is walking around. He seems very menacing to the family, but we see slowly that he is just like hungry and wants to chill um, and is confused, obviously, and a little bit lost. Um, and Nancy, I thought, has a very smart moment where she tries to distract him with Glade, <laughs> um, like the air freshener. Because he smells but terrible. My feeling... Yeah, yeah. And right. And she wants to like miss him. And he sort of like walks toward the nice smell. But I thought like, wouldn't that strike him as an extremely chemical smell? You know, like if you were out in the woods, wouldn't smelling like compressed air and and freshener be like, I don't know. Well, I think it's kind of like if you've never smelled something before and you sniff it and you're like, what is that? I feel like that's that was true. more the that's impression true. that I was getting personally. And he ends up really liking flowers where he tries to eat them, including uh, the uh, the daughter's corsage, which, so oh my God, such, such writing here, such choices. She's like, I was going to keep my 15th birthday corsage forever. I've had it in the fridge for six months. I don't know. My family fridge growing up, you you couldn't you couldn't keep much in there that didn't have to be in there. Mm-hmm. We hardly had room for like two bottles of ketchup when the ketchup was almost out. That's true. I feel that. He also eats several houseplants, which really upsets Nancy because she keeps yeah. avid houseplants. And I appreciate that. I was extremely worried about the state of their home because he is, you know, like uh, moving like furniture out of the way. And then it breaks. He's like hitting, you know, door sills and punching holes in the walls. Um, and then I quickly realized, oh, no, this is this is just going to happen. Like the house is just a casualty and we don't have to worry that much about the the, uh, the damage because it is uh, it is going to be a damage test at the end of this. Yeah, it's like introducing a cat to an apartment for the first time, I imagine. I've never done that before, but I feel like, oh, oh yeah, know. just a lot of scratching of furniture and things go awry and get knocked off shelves and whatnot, but on a much bigger scale. Absolutely. But luckily, the the family, George specifically, um, realized that he is conscious and that he you know, has consciousness. He knows what's going on. They communicate with him. Um, and really touchingly, actually, uh, Harry has a sort of mink stole that he gets from Nancy's closet upstairs mm-hmm. and recognizes it as one of his own and wants to go outside and bury it, which we see happen a couple other times as he come back, comes back to the house and tries to bury the taxidermy and the fur. Um, but I just thought that was really moving. And it's a really nice moment where the family for the first time sort of confronts how their behavior looks to a creature that isn't. Yeah, one he, of them. he shows compassion for animals that are, I guess, like him at that point when they realize what the pattern is that he keeps going in and out of the house and starting to bury things. uh, George hides all of the taxidermy because there's a lot of taxidermy in this house and hides them in the hall closet, which becomes important later. Exactly. Uh, Meanwhile, the Bigfoot hunter, whose name we will learn later is Lafleur, Jacques Lafleur, uh, meets with with some kind of Bigfoot dealer, what I call the Bigfoot dealer. Um, I call him the doctor, but all right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Why is he the doctor? Uh, because he's like a professor or whatever. He calls him Doc at one point. Oh, and right. He, yeah. He's the professor of something, something cryptozoology Anthropology? Related. Yeah, probably. Yeah. This is this is Wrightwood, um, who yes. who George will later read um, and then go and meet. George also attempts to call the police to report that there is a Bigfoot in his house, which, of course, they do not believe. 
because you're living in the Pacific Northwest. I'm sure they get a lot of prank Bigfoot calls. Yeah. And in the morning, um, I wrote a very funny lady, uh, but I, I, I later I later find her a little bit less funny, um, tries to say hello. And the family has to sort of keep Harry away from the windows again. Very like Boeing, Boeing, very farcical here. Oh, yeah. She's uh, she's returning their dog that she was dog sitting while they were on their vacation out into the woods. Yeah. And comes over to ask about some sorts of diet foods. And I was just like, oh, yeah, she I'm asked if they had brewer's yeast. And I was like, is that well, just something so in, the, in the house that one keeps? Yeah, so that's nutritional yeast, which oh. is like a vegan um, cheesy substitute. You can put it on like cauliflower and, and macaroni and stuff. Um, and I, I guess now there are just like a lot of vegetarians in Seattle. Is that the is that the stereotype? I think it, the stereotype is just she has this ridiculous fad diet that she's going on to try and lose some weight or what have you. And I, I think she's called it an energy diet. So she'll have more energy. Fair. Um, meanwhile, Ernie and Harry are bonding over TV and sugar, uh, which is extremely funny as uh, as Harry watches some old TV show with like a, a monkey um, and he sort of recognizes somebody there. Oh, I will also point out that he has this kind of confrontation when the dog is brought into the house, because, again, he kind of looks at the family accusatorily being like, why are you keeping this creature hostage? But instead, they're like, no, no, it's yeah. like a pet. And they show him that they treat the dog well and petting him. And he starts doing that to the family. Absolutely. Um, and George then sort of starts this dialogue with Ernie and with where he's realizing that he has to like they have to take Harry back. that They did something wrong and taking him out of his environment. Um, Ernie's very sad because he's bonding with Harry um, and they realize, OK, yeah, you know, we have to do this. So they decide that they are returning Harry back to the wilderness and so try to bribe him to get into the car that they hit him with twice at this point. Try to bribe mm-hmm. him to get back into the car using hamburgers, which Harry is not about because he does not eat meat he only eats fish and vegetables and they're like ah shit pescatarian yes so they hand him a bunch of filet of fishes basically and get him to get into the car which very much upsets ernie the child who runs inside and they tell him oh well you know this is the way it is this is how it has to go and meanwhile harry seeing this and seeing that the child is upset escapes Yes. And they are understandably uh, very concerned. Um, and then hear that Harry has been seen in a nearby neighborhood, which uh, the bounty hunter also hears because he realizes, I guess he tracks through um, the license plate where the Hendersons live and shows up very creepily. What? He just goes to the DMV and they give him the address for the person in the license yeah. plate and they charge yeah. him $10 and that's it. No information security whatsoever. No. Um, at all. 80s, and then what are you he- doing? I thought actually very smartly, I mean, clearly he's practiced at what he does, um, but he goes to the Henderson home and then tries to make Mrs. Henderson tell him about the roadkill, saying that he's from the Forestry Service, there's been a roadkill incident, they want to make sure that the creature is, like, not in pain, um, but luckily she won't play ball. Yes. Nancy has a lot of sense, as we established at the beginning of this film, even though they make her seem like a ditz, she is not, she knows better. Yeah. He also visits then the gun shop where Mr. Henderson, George, apparently works. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. But also, why is he in a gun shop? Like, it just, it seemed very discordant based on the character that uh, we knew. He's wearing a suit and stuff. But very soon afterward, we realize it is a family business. Yes. And George works for his dad, yes. um, who, who owns the gun shop. Yes. And if we think that George is toxic masculinity at its finest, actually, his father is. 
yeah. But again, George George gets there, so I I, I feel some uh, I feel some love for him in this uh, in this podcast today. So Lafleur comes to the gun shop, as you said, and as he is leaving, he buys very big ammo. Apparently, like oh my god, terrifying stuff yeah. that you would use to take down like, like point four or something. Yeah, something ridiculous like that. When talking to his father. His father recognizes Lafleur and identifies him as a wild game hunter who used to take down giant bears and stuff like that. We find out that his name is Jacques Lafleur, which is a great French-Canadian name. I'm in love with it. Um, And concerned about the fact that this man might be hunting down said Bigfoot, aka Harry, they, George, like a good spirits listener, heads to the library to find out more about Bigfoot. He sure does. And the librarian there has the wonderful line of pointing him toward, quote, fantasy folklore, myths and legends. And I put my arms up like a like a like a football victory. <laughs> it's very good. Also, the children's section, she recommends, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. which, uh, you know, fair. I, I understand. I understand. The family is actually very upset about all of the literature that they read uh, because it keeps depicting Bigfoot as a evil monster, except for one document that George recognizes Lafleur from, and so does Nancy. And- yeah, there's just some drawing of Lafleur's face in this in this book about uh, about like Bigfoot hunting, and Nancy's like, oh yeah, that guy that came here, and Harry's like, no, no, this guy came to my store, and so they put two and two together, which is wonderful. I, I hate when in a movie like the, there's like a simple misunderstanding that you know if corrected would solve all the problems, aka plot, um, which makes it very difficult for me to <laughs> to enjoy many movies and and uh, film and things in TV shows. But anyway, so George decides to go on a little road trip to a Bigfoot hunting store where he hears, I guess he looks up, Julia, that Wrightwood used to work there, the guy whose paper he read. Yes, he tracks down because technically the Bigfoot store is also the Institute for North American Anthropology Mm, or whatever. Sounds like a live show venue. Yeah, I'd go there. There actually is like a Bigfoot museum that is very cool and I'd like to go to at some point. Ooh, I like it. Well, here in this uh, institute slash gift shop slash museum, um, the the clerk on duty says that Sasquatch is a, quote, primitive pre-man and that Wrightwood used to work there, but now is gone and mostly retired and it's not really possible to get in touch with them. George, though, doesn't really give up and he writes a note saying that he has evidence um, that will, what, what was the note exactly, like prevent the destruction of the big fella? Yeah, basically that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's extremely sweet and grandpa-y. Just like John Lithgow is in everything. John Lithgow, bless. Um, at the same time that John Lithgow is doing all these things, we keep cutting back to Harry, who is in the Seattle suburbs, basically. Who he Oh, keep... poor thing. I felt so bad. There's a great shot where he's overlooking the highway and can see Mount Rainier in the background. And he wants to cross it so bad, but he can't because the traffic is too heavy. And so he oh, goes Harry. about and wanders more suburbs and raids more houses. Back at work, uh, George's dad asks him to draw a big scary Bigfoot for their window display. I guess with all the sightings happening, people want to load up on guns and ammo and stuff. Mm-hmm. And George is like, okay, I mean, I'll draw something, but it's not really scary. So he goes home and he's working in the basement and trying to draw. Um, and he says to his wife, which I, I give him a lot of credit for being this sort of emotionally in touch, that this is like the one time that his dad is encouraging him to paint, but he's upset that he's being called to like support the stereotype. Yeah. And also presumably to do it in service of like making money and not as art. And also violence towards 
the Bigfoot that they've right. come to know and love. So he tries a couple different scary drawings, crumples them up, throws them away, um, and ends up with a, a really nice drawing of Harry. Yes, uh, which he then takes to the store, and his father is very upset about it because it's not what he asked for whatsoever. Yeah, and he ends up replacing it with a scary drawing, which really incenses George, and he ends up quitting, which yes. sounds like a good move for his life. Good for George. We're, we're really proud of him. With that, as George is quitting, someone informs him that they just had a Bigfoot sighting in their neighborhood. And so he goes to investigate the sighting. And there are police there. There are news people. That's the word that I'm looking Reporters. for. <laughs> Reporters who are interviewing this man who apparently was attacked on his bicycle by Harry. And George confronts the man, basically tells him, you didn't get attacked. You probably fell off your bike when you saw him and you're scared and you're lying to everyone. And which the man cryingly confirms, yes, that's what happened. And all of the reporters turn to George and try to figure out what's going on with him. How do you know this information? What's going on? Do you know Bigfoot? What's up? George is like, uh, no, and then uh, runs away and continues to kind of chase these sightings around the city, as do uh, Lafleur, you know, the, the hunters, mm -hmm. until eventually he runs into Harry in a junkyard. And there are some hijinks, some actually really interesting. Is it a junkyard? It's kind of like a, a metal shop yard. At one point, they're in downtown Seattle. Harry sees George on the TV and attacks the window trying to get to the TVs, but is confused because every time he pulls it away, it unplugs. I know. And that's when the police show up. And Harry, I think, escapes down a alleyway an alley. or something to yeah. that effect and winds up in a dumpster. I saw a lot of crumpled up cars yeah. and figure that it was a junkyard. But yeah, I think you're right. Might it might have just kind been of like Seattle in the 80s. Scene. That's true. That's true. And there are definitely hijinks, including uh, George trying to drive like a big dump truck um, with, with Harry in the in the back. And it's it's very high stakes. Like LeFleur is in there. They could definitely have killed each other. Yeah. LaFleur has a gun. He almost shoots Harry several times. It's it's very bad. Luckily, George is so terrible at driving this truck that the dumpster that they're in goes flying off of the garbage truck and LaFleur is arrested by the police while Harry and George make their escape. Yes, luckily, uh, he, he gets Harry home. And now there's a little montage time where Harry gets a rinse in the pool. They blow dry him. He's sitting in a, in a chair enjoying the Adams family. Um, and it, it's really very wholesome and adorable. It's very sweet. And also, I think at this point in the movie, I was really admiring the amount of like puppetry uh, that goes yeah. on with Harry's face because it's really, really impressive. Yeah, tell me about it. How did they shoot this? So Amanda, the the person who did the special effects and the puppetry for Harry in this film is actually the same person who did An American Werewolf in London. You know, I was just going to bring that up because the previous chase scene really reminded me of the end of American Werewolf in London. Yeah, the, uh, the puppetry is really fantastic. It took four people to do the puppetry for Harry in like all of the scenes. Wow. And the man actually who did the movement for Harry, like was in the suit the whole time, is actually the mm -hmm. same man who played the Predator in the Predator series. Oh, wow. I mean, it really is well done. Yeah, like he, Harry is definitely animalistic while having real expression mm -hmm. and real feeling. And you can kind of see his character arc change from confused and sort of intimidating to, you know, member of the family that's definitely still not human, but is human-like. He does a very good sheepish expression that they use many yeah. times in the film. And every time you do, I'm just like, oh, no, so sweet. What, babe? So sweet. Well, Julia, I'm riveted and I already know what happens, but let's grab a quick refill before we continue. 
Jules, we've just come back from PodX in Nashville, which was super, super fun. It was also really nice to have all six hosts of Multitude in the same room, which we are not always. Um, and one morning, the last day of the con, we all came downstairs to realize that everybody had worn a loud printed shirt, several of which were from Stitch Fix. Now, I am used to being the person in the room with the uh, loudest print of shirt, but Shubes and Silver and Schneider and Brandon and you gave me a run for my money. So if you want to make sure that you are sharp dressed at your next con, at your next meeting with your podcast team, at the Bell House when you come and see us. You gotta sign up for Stitch Fix. It's an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, accessories to fit your body and your budget and also your lifestyle. Yeah, you take a quick style quiz and then an expert personal stylist will send you hand-picked items in a box that fit your style and your preferences. They have men's, they have women's, they have kids. It's all It's all there. It's all you have to do. And there's no subscription required. So you can pick either automatic shipments or just get ones when you're ready for them. Uh, Shipping exchanges and returns are always free. Plus, uh, the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything that you keep from the box. So if you decide to keep one shirt, you're not paying that extra $20 because you kept a shirt. Exactly. And you can even get 25% off when you keep all of the items they send you in your box when you go to stitchfix.com slash spirits and place your order. Yep, that's stitchfix.com slash spirits. Jules, we are also sponsored this week by Skillshare, the online learning community where you can learn and teach just about anything, just like we do. And at Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2, you can get two months of Skillshare Premium for free. That means that you have access to all of the classes that they have to offer, not just the ones that are available for free. And this month, I am so excited to be enrolling in the workshop Hand Lettering for Beginners. This is one of those skills that I just think is complete wizardry when you walk past a chalkboard or a mural or a shop window and it's like this beautiful like artwork of people writing signs and if I could do that for myself if I could do that in the multitude office man I would feel like a a complete and utter like Rembrandt Ooh, can you apply those new skills for writing out things for my wedding Ooh, I can completely maybe think about committing to writing (laughs) place cards for your wedding with my new skills learned on Skillshare in the Hand Lettering for Beginners workshop. So again, that's Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2, the number two, to get two months of Skillshare Premium for free. Yep. Again, that is Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2. You get two free months of Skillshare. So Amanda, let's talk about boobs real quick. I love boobs. Me too. I got them. They're nice. I like it. But sometimes they're uncomfortable because I haven't gotten my bra sized since ninth grade. Yeah. uh, Let's talk about the fact that um, it's summertime and I genuinely I just cannot buy strapless things or like spaghetti strap things because I have yet to find a strapless bra that doesn't make me want to die after about 10 minutes. Oof. Yeah, I feel that. Well, luckily, Amanda, there's third love. Whoa. So Third Love is a bra company that is on a mission to find the perfect bra for everyone. So they not only have 78 different sizes, they also have half cups, which I've always been like kind of, oh, well, you know, I want to put this bra on, but it's a little too tight. Or I want to put this one on, but then like the cups are sagging. Found out I was a half cup this whole time. I didn't know that. 
I found out that my band size was two sizes wrong. Whoa. Yeah. And the, the quiz is really nice, too, because it asks you to talk about your existing bra fit. Like, it's not just you measure yourself and tell them. It's like, oh, do the straps sag? Is the band too tight? You know, how does it fit against your chest? Like, is it flush with your chest? And that's the kind of stuff where if you go in person to get fit, they can help you with. But online, it's really difficult. So this is actually the only online quiz that has worked for me and given me a really good size. Yeah. And the best part is it takes 60 seconds. It actually, like, takes into account things that I didn't realize mattered. Like, did you know that the like shape of your breast decides like what is a good fit for you? I didn't know that. Didn't know that sure that didn't. influenced it. And the best part too, in my opinion, is that Third Love has a 100% fit guarantee. So you have 60 days to wear the bra that you get. You can wash it. You can put it to the test. And if you don't like it, you can return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to someone in need, which is really, really nice and like genuinely great. And also I, I had to return mine because I thought I wasn't a half cup, but apparently I was. And the process was really simple and really easy. Yeah, shipping is free. Returns are free, which is always, always awesome. So you can go to thirdlove.com slash spirits to get your perfect fitting bra and 15% off that first purchase. Yep. So go to thirdlove.com slash spirits. You get that perfect fitting bra and 15% off your first purchase. Please let us know how you like your third love bras. We love ours and we'd love to hear how it goes. Yes. All of our, our bra wearing listeners. All right. Now let's get back to the show. Jacques has been taken to prison where he belongs. The rat bastard at this point. Um, <laughs> the professor calls George to talk to him about Bigfoot uh, and they invite him over to the house for dinner, which seems concerning, but also, okay, yeah, I mean, we got to move the plot along somehow. Yeah, and uh, very, you know, predictably, Wrightwood was the man in the gift shop. Yes, wow. he was. Whoa. It's not like we didn't know that because they had a scene earlier on in the film with Jacques and him talking about it, but all right. But um they set him down for dinner. They say that they're making a roast. When they sit down for dinner, they're like, where's the roast? They're like, in a shallow grave in the backyard. <laughs> because Harry <laughs> has once again taken a poor animal and buried it, given it the proper burial it deserves. Yeah. Nancy, that was a real standout line from Nancy. I really enjoyed that delivery. Um, Harry is kind of killing time until they're ready to introduce the professor to Harry. Uh, he's listening to music in one of the bedrooms upstairs, and he actually discovers the art that George had done of him kind of looking evil yeah. and is really frustrated by it. Oh, I was so sad. <laughs> Meanwhile, the doctor is telling the story of how he started hunting Bigfoot and how he like came across him one day and the search kind of ruined his life. And so he's there to advise George to give it up because he doesn't want what happened to him to happen to George and his family. And meanwhile, everyone starts giggling because as he doesn't know it, uh, Harry has approached them and is standing right behind him as he tells the story about Bigfoot isn't real. Yeah. And it's it's very moving. I was worried here that Wrightwood would react in a in a really extreme way and try to capture him or kill him or something. But Wrightwood is instead really moved and excited to see him, which I totally understand as somebody who spent your life, you know, looking after something that you are now kind of resigned to the fact that you've thrown away that life. Yeah. But instead, Harry's right here and he's really excited. And he ends up bringing in a sleeping bag from his car for Harry to sleep on in the corner of the living room where he sort of has brought some tree branches and other things to make him feel at home. And he sleeps right next to him in the morning. You see Ernie Harry and the professor mm -hmm. all sleeping next to each other because they've decided they're going to take Harry to a place where no one will disturb him and no one will find him so that he could live his best life. George has a great line about how people don't believe in wonder anymore. 
so that by putting Harry somewhere where people won't poke and prod at him or disturb him or try to use him for science, they can save him and give him the life he deserves. Yeah, it is very touching indeed and kind of the thesis of spirits in a way, Yeah, uh, which I, I thought was was incredibly sweet. Well, as soon as they decide on this plan, unfortunately, uh, Lafleur finds them and chases them as they bring Harry back to the forest. Yes, we do have a very cute moment before they take Harry away where he picks all of the, the neighbor's roses and gives them to the daughter, Sarah, to make up for the fact that he ate her corsage that first night. It's very sweet. It is super adorable. I love it so much. Lafleur has discovered where they are, is trying to track Harry down. They escape in the professor's car, uh, which is an old beat-up car, um, and he steals their family car after George sabotages his cool off-road truck that he had. It was a cool truck. I did want it. The chase kind of ends because they are stuck in traffic uh, heading towards Mount Rainier, which is only kind of broken up when a police car goes by and everyone is very concerned that the police are after them. But instead, the police officer is just heading to another call, but the car is all parked for him. So Harry, hearing the siren, mimics the sound so that the family can escape through the traffic and off they go to Mount Rainier. They take Harry to Mount Rainier uh, and they have this kind of heartfelt goodbye, which is made worse because Harry does not want to leave. And so George has to yell at him. He says, go, we don't want you here. He slaps him across the face and Harry retreats into the wilderness, but not before Lafleur arrives and they realize that Lafleur can track Harry by his footprints. Big old feet. Big old feet, Julia. So the family... Big old feet. feet. So the family devises a way of distracting Lafleur and sending him off the trail by strapping the like casts of Bigfoot that they had in the truck and making footprints all over so that Lafleur cannot track Harry down. It is so ingenious. And it reminded me of um, during our discussions about Bigfoot, how there is sometimes solitary, sometimes talk about families or pairs. So Lafleur gets so excited in the idea that he's found like a whole family group of Bigfoot. (laughs) Right. But in fact, no, it is the family. Yes. Uh, Harry intercedes, though, when he realizes that George and Lafleur are going to run into each other as George is making these tracks and so there is a bit of a fight at one point the dog runs in and attacks Lafleur um, and basically Harry is able to subdue Lafleur and holding is and is holding him over by the family car George is really upset like personally upset that Lafleur would go after Harry in this way and sort of slams Lafleur's head against the car and seems like he's gonna just keep doing that until Harry actually stops them and this is the moment Julia where like who is the monster and who is the man yeah. because Harry sort of like puts his hand behind Lafleur's head holds George off and you know weren't weren't we the real monsters all along am i right shows compassion which we it have sure seen him have shadows of in the past but this is the real moment where he seems to understand what is going on and intercedes into the situation and has compassion like you said for someone who is threatening him or right. has threatened him in the past which i think is is the real you know it's not just self-preservation it's also real like thinking about what is this person's motivation and what is the right response? Yeah. Jock basically has a breakdown and Harry pets him, basically, like they do with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and he he sees the error of his ways and decides he's not going to kill Harry and that Harry should live free the way he's supposed to. Very, very sweet. They say a, another kind of proper goodbye. They take a family photo. 
great. Oh, they do. It's very sweet. And as Harry finally walks off, Wrightwood and Lafleur sort of laugh and they're like, well, I guess that chapter's done. How about the Loch Ness Monster, eh? <laughs> and as Harry is walking into the wilderness, all of a sudden, these other big feet emerge and follow him yeah. in there. Did you notice them before they turned around, by the way? No, I did not. Yes. So that is actually... the. It's a great, great shot, too, because they're just standing there and you're kind of looking at the Harry, like, go into the wilderness, followed by trees. And all of a sudden they just turn around and they go in after him. And it's like this really big moment. And it, I, I've read an interview with the the director of this film where he talks about, yeah, everyone was convinced, like, we were shooting this and they're like, this is going to look ridiculous. They're just standing there. Everyone's going to notice that they're there. And then they saw it on film and it was like this big, awe-inspiring moment. Yeah. And it's really nice, too, because I was so worried that Harry was leaving this family bond, these relationships. But we also realized that he has a whole life and a whole social structure and family that we didn't get to see. So he's not just giving something up. He had this interesting experience and now he's going home. Yeah. So let's kind of talk about a little bit the Bigfoot experience and how accurate this movie is. One of the one yeah. of the big things that stood out for me was the kind of calls that Harry was doing throughout the film and then also being able to mimic the siren at the end of it. So a big thing that Bigfoot researchers will talk about is the fact that Bigfoot has a very distinct call and it differs from region to region. So for example, the Yeti known as the Mank in Russia will do a whistling noise instead of what you would consider like a humanoid grunting or growling, which is oh, sure. what you would assume kind of a creature of that size right. would do. Um, also, they've talked about how they kind of have like very strong vocalization, but they will mimic the sounds around them. A lot of Bigfoot hunters will argue that big feet can mimic sounds around them in order to kind of throw people off their trail. Which is very very Makes cool. Sense. Uh, I like the I like that they kind of played with the vocalizations of Bigfoot in this mm -hmm. film. It was very very interesting. And I liked too this idea of um, you know does Bigfoot sort of come out and get aggressive or are they just protecting themselves when threatened? Yeah. Which we also spoke a little bit about like why you know why are the sightings almost always like a sighting in the distance or a confrontation? Right. Is it territorialness or are they shy creatures, etc. Mm hmm. I think that also the experience of the Bigfoot hunter in this film is very distinct. Um, if you yeah. haven't listened to the podcast Wild Thing, which is about a woman who discovers that her like distant relative is a big name in the Bigfoot searching community. She interviews a lot of people who have had Bigfoot experiences, who have dedicated their life to hunting Bigfoot. And I think very much the professor's character in this is a reflection of that obsession that can quote unquote ruin your life. It becomes like so consuming to you. And the, uh, the podcast is a good uh, reflection of that as well. So highly recommend checking out wild thing. It's very interesting. And I think it does speak a lot to the experiences of people who dedicate their life and time to hunting for Bigfoot. I really love too this idea of Wrightwood as somebody who has like, uh, almost entrapped himself in like a, a castle or career of his own making. It, it was so kind of persuasive to me to see him knowing now who he was in the gift shop being like, no, hard to reach, doesn't really do much these days. <laughs> you know, he just, he wants some anonymity. Um, and especially, I don't know, as, as you know, our, our sort of position right now, 
um, in our careers, trying to, you know, find more people who want to hear us, who we can help, who we can be helped by, trying to just like increase our, our network and like meet more folks. This sort of vision of someone as just trying to sort of like close the Pandora's box that he's opened, um, I think was a little bit tragic, but I'm, I'm glad to see that he had a fulfilling um, experience, you know, being able to like make a friend, see the end to this journey um, and sort of decide what's next for him. Also be one of only a couple of people who can confirm for real that Bigfoot existed when that was your life goal for so long. That's such a fulfilling moment there. Totally. And no Bigfoot's had to die in the making of this adventure. Thank God. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the film's kind of ecological conservation message because we talked a little bit about the beginning, but uh, so much of it is about how we should be respecting nature and respecting the animals that we kind of take for granted in our in our life uh like one of the lines that nancy does when um when harry discovers the mink stole is she's like well i didn't kill it and my grandma Mm -hmm. didn't kill it they they were probably just raised on a farm and then and killed by by ranchers because they knew someone would buy it like she realizes as she's saying it like how how much of a fallacy her idea was like well i didn't do it but she's also participating in this culture that it like leads to the death of these animals yeah and even to the sort of um appeal to vegetarianism like i don't think it's like a militant vegan movie but it does definitely encourage us to think about our relationship to animals yeah like we are not without impact on the rest of the world the human animal is not you know like I guess this depends on your religion and your particular worldview, but like we are all related to each other in some way. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot that we have in common with other creatures. They're not just like completely other from us. Um, And being able, you know, regardless of like the the ethical decision you choose to make with what you consume and how you consume it um, and and the sort of ethics of your own diet, uh, just reminding, I think, ourselves and each other that all of our actions have consequences and that all of our choices um, are choices, even ones that we make because that's how we were raised. Yeah. And absolutely. The family learns compassion for other creatures from Harry. So we see, we see this family start with the murder of a rabbit on a hunting trip. And then we basically get led to a vegetarian dinner at the end of the film um, and learning that, well, Harry understands that all animals have value and should be treated as living creatures, and the family learns that too. And it, they, it's such a sharp contrast from how the Hendersons see Harry at the end to how Lafleur is seeing Harry. Yeah, and I, I was really happy that George got to kind of reckon with uh, his own upbringing and the legacies passing on to his kids um, when him and Nancy were talking as he was trying to draw the, you know, the the portrait of Harry. Um, he was resentful that his dad never supported him and and only ever gave him an opportunity to follow in his dad's footsteps and do kind of one version of what it is to, to be a man. Um, and he was like, yeah, all I wanted was an art set. My dad just bought me a BB gun. And then Nancy's like, oh, like like you did for Ernie. And George was like, oh, shit, <laughs> like I am I am repeating the things that were done to me unthinkingly. Yeah. And I, I hope that this is an opportunity for him to think a little bit more about encouraging both of his children as people and not um, just kind of following a mold that was set out for him. Right. And we see that with Ernie, absolutely, where Ernie is a little demon child at the beginning of this film but by the end of it he is he's telling the dog he's like you need to go be free i'm showing the dog compassion because he shouldn't be here he shouldn't be cooped up in our home when he deserves to be out in the wilderness or what have you and it's really really nice to see that kind of 
positive influence of parenthood on a child in a film during the 80s, especially one where it yeah. starts so heavily with toxic masculinity and then everyone learns compassion by the end of it. Yeah, and the uh, the teenage daughter is very much a, I think, stereotype of a teenage daughter, but she also gets to make contributions. She sort of warms up at the end of the movie. Nobody, like, penalizes her for acting out. They sort of, like, allow her to be herself and feel her feelings, trusting and knowing that they're going to, like, come together as a family at the end. I just remembered one of the lines that she has at the beginning where they're worried that the neighbor is going to find out about them having Harry in the house. And she's like, well, once she knows, everyone in the neighborhood is going to know, and I might as well drop out of school and live in a cave and marry a zookeeper. I'm just like, those are some wild assumptions, <laughs> but I really like that marry a zookeeper is on there. That's hilarious. I know. That, that's like the most date class a person can get. <laughs> it's very good. Listen, I follow several zookeepers from the hit Animal Planet show, The Zoo, on Instagram, and they are the it. bomb. I know how much you love that show. It's very good. Thank you. I'm trying to think if there's any other points I would like to make about Harry and the Hendersons. For the 80s, very good, very progressive, A+. I know, and the film was really entertaining. It had a nice movement to it, a nice plot arc. I, I walked away feeling good. I think I would definitely put it on again in the background, you know, when I'm like doing something and, and it just happens to be on TV. Um, and my my bar for wanting to rewatch a movie is pretty high. Yeah. So I was pleasantly surprised by this. Um, and thanks for, for bringing it to our Myth Movie Night. It's my pleasure. Uh, do you want to give the movie a rating? Hmm. I think I will rate it. Uh four toes out of five i like that very big toes toes that kind of resemble mice at one point in the film yep that's yeah. definitely true it's very good all right um thank you listeners we hope you enjoyed this myth movie night i'm glad you brought the popcorn and if you have any movies to suggest for a future myth movie night you can let us know at spiritspodcast.com just click that contact page and you can let us know your suggestions as well as any urban legends that you would like to share heck yeah give us those urban legends tell us about your bigfoot experiences i know what would you do if you uh woke up with a, a bigfoot in your garage um I, not scream i'm not really a screamer kind of person i would be very concerned i would probably just kind of let it lie until it wandered away <laughs> You know, I think I would probably call Jake and then go back to sleep. Yeah, that's fair. I would have Jake. <laughs> well, in this situation and any other listeners, just remember, stay creepy, stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors. At stitchfix.com spirits, you can get 25% off when you keep all of the items they send you in your box. Skillshare.com spirits2, number two, will get you two free months of Skillshare premium. And thirdlove.com spirits gets you 15% off your first purchase. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just one dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.